My friends, our Lord has spoken to us. Let us hear what he speaks again this morning. And when his family heard about Jesus, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord in heaven, we would ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We pray, O Lord, through Christ. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles, flip them open, if you would, to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we are about uh, two months or so into our study of the Gospel of Mark, and that provides me a good opportunity to remind you that I would desperately love for all of you to read the Gospel of Mark. Please take some time and read the Gospel of Mark, and just as a little bit of a bone here to uh, the young folks in the room, Again, anybody who's under 18 that reads through the Gospel of Mark and wants to come and tell me that they have, we can have ice cream together. Uh, I've already had the advantage of that. No, not you, Marty. Only people that are 18 and, old and younger uh, can do that. Uh, and I am in need of more ice cream, so please uh, come and talk with me about this so that uh, we can get going a little bit along those lines. Most of us are somewhat uh, uh, sensitive to our reputations. Uh, when we want people in the w public sphere to speak well about us, to speak accurately about us. We're uncomfortable when somebody says something that is not true, and I don't know about you, but I get very defensive whenever I hear somebody speaking something about me that isn't true. I want to jump to my defense really quickly, want to defend my reputation. Well, in this passage, Jesus' reputation tends to get smeared a little bit. Right off the bat, we have his family that thinks he's crazy. Now, I have to say, my family often tells me that I'm crazy, but they don't mean it like Jesus' family here. Jesus is being accused of actually being out of his mind, not having the right understanding of what's going on. And a little bit later then, the Pharisees and the scribes, they accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. Uh, all the opposition that I have faced in numerous areas of my life, I've never had somebody tell me that they think I'm possessed by the evil one or something along those lines. Jesus is upheld as a celebrity, looked at as a celebrity, 
or even just as a good moral teacher. In all of these ways, Jesus' reputation is before the people, and he is intent on correcting that understanding. He wants to adjust their misperception about who he is and particularly what he has done. Not because he's defending his reputation, but because what he wants to do is offer for us an insight into the truth of what he has done for us. And so right in the beginning, in verse 21, his family heard about Jesus, and they came out to seize him, that is, to grab a hold of him, force him, saying that he's out of his mind. The out of his mind here is not just kind of the flippant way in which we use it. They're actually thinking that Jesus has had some kind of a mental breakdown. Now, in verse 22, the scribes come. The scribes, again, are kind of the religious leaders of the day. They're the high-powered leaders, and they come from uh, Jerusalem. That is, that these are not just local uh, Pharisees or local religious leaders who Jesus has had conflict with in the past, but now we've got people coming down from Jerusalem. We've got the high-powered guys who are coming to see what's going on with this Jesus, and the reason why they're interested is because stories are floating around that he's casting out demons, that he's healing the sick, and some of the teachings that he's giving is such that the people are like, wow, who is this guy? And so the Pharisees, the, the, uh, the authorities, they come down from Jerusalem to this backwoods area of Galilee, and they interview, they basically watch Jesus, and they try to determine what is Jesus doing here, and who is this Jesus, and they draw a conclusion. He is possessed, in verse 22, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul, another name for him is Beelzebub, and this is the, the false god of the surrounding nations around Israel during Israel's formative years. Baal is the god, and Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, is kind of the god of the flies, or god of nothingness, the god of emptiness. He's the false god, he's the idol, he's Satan. And this is another name for Satan, and they are accusing Jesus. They say, look, he's got this power. We see it. He keeps healing people. He keeps driving out demons. How is it possible that Jesus is doing that? Well, he has to be drawing power. He has to be possessed by a demon, and that's what enables him to do these kind of things. And Jesus, right away, when he hears this, he calls everybody to him. I assume that includes the scribes. He calls them to him, and he says, look, the logic, he, he makes a logical argument. The logic of what you're saying is, makes no sense. He just clarifies for them. He says, come on, think about this for a second. A house divided itself can never stand. If Satan is interested in expanding his kingdom, then how can Satan be possessing me when I'm fighting against Satan's kingdom? Jesus is saying, look, I keep tossing out. I, I keep healing people from demon possession. How likely is it, it doesn't make any sense, that Satan would be the one directing this? Satan doesn't rise up. Satan is not fighting against Satan. Rather, Jesus is saying, that's not where I'm getting the source of my power. My power does not come from Satan. He makes this logical argument that is very straightforward, and we continue to use this phrasing, this language today. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That makes logical sense. And then in verse 27, Jesus tells a quick parable to support his idea here. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, that's common sense, right? The truism of that statement just appears self-evident. If you're going to steal from somebody, first you want to make sure they're not home or you need to restrain them. You need to capture them. One of the great raids um, in uh, World War II, freedom of where a bunch of uh, POWs were rescued was over in the Philippines and there was a POW camp, a prisoner of war camp that was very far below, behind enemy lines, behind Japanese enemy lines. And the U.S. soldiers that were tasked to go and rescue these POWs, they knew that they could get safely to the camp. They even suspected that they'd be able to get back away from the camp. But the challenge was how to actually free the prisoners who were in the camp. And the ideas tossed around about how they could sneak the POWs out and stuff like that. And in the end, everybody realized, of course, at first they had to either kill, capture, or drive away the Japanese guards before they were able to free the POWs. And incidentally, the raid was successful. It was one of the greatest uh, free uh, captivities that were released of these 500 or more allied soldiers that were freed up from captivity because first the soldiers took care of the guards. They first bound the strong man, then you're able to plunder the strong man's house. Now, why does Jesus use this parable? For most of us, the association is that the thief here is Satan. Stealing is bad. Here somebody wants to steal from the strong man's house, therefore Satan has to be the thief. But that doesn't follow, that doesn't connect at all with the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is standing here before the Pharisees that are accusing him of being in league with Satan. And he's saying, I'm not in league with Satan, I am opposed to Satan. Satan is the strong man. It is Satan's house that is the strong man that Jesus is coming to plunder. Jesus is the one who is coming to first bind up the strong man. First he comes to cast out demons. First he comes to be utterly and totally and completely victorious over Satan. And then he can plunder his house. Now what does plundering Satan's house mean? Of course it means to come to free to remove from captivity those whom are being held by Satan. Jesus says, I am not in league with Satan. I am oppo- my kingdom opposes Satan. And here you can see it because I have bound up the strong man. I have captured the one who is in control. And now I can free those who have been caught in bondage. This is one of the great images, one of the great pictures in the scriptures of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, that yes, every person in this room at one time or another was held captive by Satan. Some of us can't remember when that was the case. Some of us don't want to remember what it was like to be held in Satan's hands, but because of the victory of Jesus Christ, because he is the one who has come and bound up the strong man, Now he is able to free those who are trapped in bondage. Every believer in this room has been freed from the bondage of Satan because Jesus 
is victorious over him and has bound up the strong man. After detailing the fact that he is the Savior, he's the one who rescues us from Satan's hand, then Mark records this both truly comforting and in some ways truly frightening phrase. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven of the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. And let me tell you, what a great blessing that is. So you can imagine people who are following Jesus along and they say, oh wait, you're the one who's going to come free the people who have been trapped in the strong man's house. Who are you freeing? It, does it include me? Can it include me? And Jesus comes and he says, all of the sins of the children of men. That's me. All of the sins will be forgiven. What about the really bad ones? Yes, even the blasphemies of mankind. Even what you said against Jesus or about God when you were in the pits of your despair and frustration. Even the things that you said when you spoke out of ignorance and you were so offensive. Even those things that you did, that you intentionally did and you knew was out of line. All your sin is freed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. He has tied up the strong man. He has freed you from captivity. Therefore, no one can take you out of his hands. Yes, all are saved. And what a great comfort in this passage is intended to speak of the assurance that we have as Christians, that we are safe and secure in God's hands. And then Jesus goes on to say, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. And the angst and the doubt and the concern that that line has caused through the ages is immense. Because any true believer, any person who is filled with the Spirit has that great concern that accidentally, that somehow without my knowing it, or maybe in my foolishness, or maybe even in my intentionality, I have somehow blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and committed the unpardonable sin. And the fear that is evoked by this verse in people's hearts misses the entire point of what Jesus is trying to communicate. What Jesus is communicating is that he has bound up Satan. The strong man no longer has any power. He has been utterly and completely victorious over it. Therefore, you are free if you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Above all else, the power of the Holy Spirit is not to make us do wonderful things. It's not to enable us to speak in tongues or to prophesy or to preach or to sing well. Or The power of the Holy Spirit overwhelmingly in the Scriptures is to draw us to Jesus Christ. How is it? Who is freed from bondage? Who is freed from Satan's power? Everyone. Everyone save those who in their own will reject the call of our God. 
who is freed from Satan's bondage? Who is freed there from that? All those whom Jesus has called and those who freely and totally reject the Lord have indeed blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, rest assured that's the point that Jesus is trying to communicate here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no fear. For he has bound up the strong man and he has freed you from all bondage. This is the wondrous mystery of our salvation. This is what the Lord has done in our hearts and in our lives. One of the great joys of having out-of-town guests uh, who haven't been to Pittsburgh before is you get to take them around, you get to show them the sights of Pittsburgh, and Kelly and I enjoy doing that. We take them up to Mount Washington, we take them down to the point, maybe to the strip, over to the stadiums, or we take them uh, up to Pitt campus to see the Tower of Learning, the Cathedral of uh, whatever it is, that big building there, uh, and, we, and we look at it. Uh, but one of the things I always try to do is stop off at Permani Brothers. Get them a Permani sandwich. Yes, I do, Mark. Uh, okay, now, for many people, uh, if, you don't, if you've never had a Permani sandwich, then this illustration goes right past you. Just sit there and, and be nice. But okay, so Permani sandwich, if you've ever had one, it's got two nice layers of bread. You know, you've got the bread, the top bread, and then inside you've got a thing of meat and then uh, french fries and coleslaw all on the inside. Now, when you tell this to people, they all kind of go, ugh, you know, that sounds terrible, until you take a bite and everything works together and it's just amazing. Mark uses a literary technique here. It's called the sandwich principle or the sandwich model of writing up a story. And the imagery is that you start a story, and that's a top layer of bread, and then you move into an entirely different story and tell an entirely different story. That's the insight, that's the meat that's on the inside of the sandwich. And then you circle back to that first story again, that's the lower level of the bread, and taken together, the first story helps you understand the middle story, and the middle story helps you understand the outside story. And this is a literary technique that Mark uses numerous times throughout his gospel message. We're going to come up with it in future, future times as we run along. But this is the first time in his gospel that he hits upon this particular literary technique. And he, it's the, the outside story, the bread story, is a question of who is Jesus's family. The inside story is what has Jesus done to save us from Satan. And so the outside story begins in verse 21 again. And his family, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They went out to grab a hold of him to forcibly take him somewhere because they think that he's crazy. So Jesus' family is introduced here as those who literally think that he has lost his marbles, that he's gone. And so they seize him in order to take him along the lines. And that, but now then in verse 31, the bottom part of the sandwich, we return to this after we've seen this work of Jesus Christ, that he frees people from bondage. We get this return to Jesus, his discussion about his parents. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, 
they sent to him and called to him. Okay, so think about this. All around Jesus is a crowd. These are all people that are excited by Jesus' celebrity. And sitting at his feet are Jesus' disciples, but his family, his biological family, mother and brothers, are standing outside saying, Jesus, come out here to us. Come out here to us. And Jesus says, who's my father? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Who's my sister? It's not them on the outside. And he looks specifically at those who sat around him. And he said, here's my mother. Here's my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God. What do we who are followers of Jesus Christ want more than to do the will of God? We always want to do that. The hard part is knowing what it is. But if nothing else, at a very bottom line, the will of God is to embrace the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. The will of God is to recognize that God has bound up the strong man so that we can be free of our bondage and our and, and our uh, being trapped in our sin. And not just that, that's the great image of the middle part of the sandwich. But the outside part of the sandwich is that when you are freed from your bondage to Satan, you have a new family. Who is Jesus' family? Those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, those who recognize that we have been freed from bondage, we are the family of God. He is our father. He is our brother in everything in which we do and how we act. This is the wondrous mystery of this text that we not only are freed from sin, that's great, but we are freed into a new eternal relationship with God himself. He is our brother. What a wonderful mystery. So what? Great. Christ has bound up the strong man. It's great. Christ has plundered the strong man's house and freed you from his bondage. So what? You are eternally secure. You have no fear ever of separation, eternal separation from our Lord. So what? You are now a brother to Jesus Christ. Every day, every day, you live in that new relationship. Every morning, wake up. Remind yourself that you are no longer in Satan's hands. You are no longer bound by Satan because the strong man has been restrained. The victory is ours in Jesus Christ. You have no fear, no fear of the eternal consequences of your sin, both the past and the present and the future. Yes, there are consequences. Yes, you will bear the marks of your silly and sinful mistakes, but never eternally because Christ has saved you from that sin. And not only that, but he has brought you into a loving 
relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can look to him and realize that he loves you like a brother. My friends, this is well worth celebrating. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, for the redemption that you have purchased for us upon the cross, and for that imagery of Satan being bound so that you might plunder those whom he has taken captive, that you might save us and redeem us from all of our suffering and all of our sin. Lord, you have done that marvelous work, and we rejoice and we remember that marvelous work in everything in which we do. Help me, Lord, help us, Lord, live as brothers and sisters, free from the sin that so easily entangles us.